Greetings from Las Vegas for CareTalk's third annual HLTH conference interview series. Our guest today is Ben Leonard, health technology reporter at Politico, where he covers digital health happenings in the federal government and the industry overall. Welcome to CareTalk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare, business, and policy, and now a top five healthcare podcast. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. So Ben, welcome. What is health technology? Wow, that's a that's a pretty big question. There's a lot of there's so much new stuff going on. I mean, if you just look at the exhibit floor here, you know, it's it's really at it runs the gamut. Um, you know, but what I focus on is telehealth, AI, and kind of just the future of healthcare, which is pretty broad and doesn't help clarify much. I know. <laughs> so there's a lot going on in digital health here, but also uh, you cover some of the interesting policy parts of it, both at the federal level and uh, down at the state level too. So just had an election; it's still being decided. Um, Most of it's it's pretty well decided now. Who's going to control the House, I guess, is clear. But uh, what is that going to mean in terms of policies, investigations, cybersecurity, COVID? Yeah, so so we're going to have divided government back in Washington again. Um, No longer, you know, I guess the race has not been officially called as the time we're taping it in the House, but um, the House will go Republican, most likely. Um, So we're going to see, you know, from the House Republican side, uh, investigations into the Biden administration um, definitely, you know, may not be as smooth of a, um, you know, it'll be tougher to get things done for both sides, well, for Democrats, not necessarily for Republicans, but for both sides um, in Congress. Um, we'll see investigations on the House side, but I think there definitely is still some stuff that can be done because it's divided government. Um, the parties will have to focus a bit on what um you know, they can get done on a bipartisan basis. Jason Gurevic, the CEO of Teladoc, a completely unbiased observer of telemedicine, had suggested, which 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 was intriguing, that the the flexibility to provide more virtual and telemedicine during the pandemic would continue and that there's bipartisan support for the the rolling back of those restrictions from that used to be hardly, really hard fought by the legacy healthcare incumbents. Do you think that's true? Is there a possibility for kind of compromise and expansion of telemedicine? Yeah, definitely. In the short term, we're going to see a temporary extension from Congress, most likely in the lame duck, according to people I've been talking to recently. on Temporary extension of the public health emergency or just the telehealth? Just the telehealth stuff. Um, the, the public health emergency will run another three months because HHS didn't give notice. So it'll go through at least April. So... So you spoke about, you've actually written a bit about the lame duck session and what we might expect. And just to put things uh, in perspective and what you said about Jason. So Jason, a couple of years ago, spent $18 billion on a company. Now, the lame duck session of Congress is talking about, uh, as part of the uh, Defense Authorization Act, $5 billion for global health. And we, we may not get it. So you could have bought three, you know, you could get three global healths for topic, the price of a Lavongo. I am on topic. I'm, I'm setting Ben up here. It's like, how do you think about $18 billion? Right. I know for you, that's not a lot of money, John, but for most people, Walgreens, yeah, it is. So I know that's like, you know, that's, that's like, I won't say what that compares with. Yeah. $5 billion. So what is this global, you know, health element and why is it a defense authorization bill anyway? What's the background on that? To be honest, this isn't the area I report on the most. It was in my newsletter, but um, I think it's on pandemic preparedness. Um, I think the reality, David, is the the, the ADA, the, the, the Defense Authorization Act, which everyone votes for, often people, no, but people attach stuff with it because they're like, well, they're not going to say no to spending on defense. And, it, and both parties have often used it as a vehicle to actually get things done where there is, as, as Ben suggested, some bipartisan support. I, I thought it was intriguing that 
there were a number of things that were healthcare oriented that were part of it. But I, uh, but apparently that's, that, that's sort of the, the way business gets done in Washington, David, is not exactly what your civics te- textbook would suggest. Hey, how about cannabis? Let's talk about the states, okay? So if you think about healthcare, what happened with the election, there's, there's some things that happened at the, at the state and local level too, right? I think abortion rights, cannabis, Medicaid, all on, all on the ballot, Ben. And I don't know if you, if you covered those. Yeah, so I followed the abortion stuff. Um, and it was definitely a big motivating factor for voters. Um, most abortion or provision or I guess ballot measures, uh, expanding abortion rights access really uh, succeeded in most states where it was on the ballot this year. Um, and it seemed to drive a lot of people to the polls. And I think was a big reason why we saw this sort of unexpected, um, moderate, very moderate red ripple um, in, in the House. And Democrats were able to hold the Senate, I think, was the issue of abortion was, you know, front of mind for a lot of voters and brought a lot more people out to the polls that may or not have voted otherwise. And how about cannabis? You know, abortion rights, I think they're, they're was... kind of focused on cannabis all of a sudden. Vince, I'm concerned that our that our co-host is like, I may lose track of him. You were gone for a bit at lunch. There's, I'm not wearing sunglasses because of that, John. Okay. In case you're wondering what's going on, it's the bright lights, big city that I'm not used to. But, you know, unlike abortion rights, okay, which I think on the ballot everywhere, uh, there was expansion or holding back of things that were more extreme. Cannabis has maybe gotten beyond the point where it's going to succeed everywhere. And there were some places where it actually wasn't, uh, you know, legalization either wasn't promoted or it just wasn't, you know, hasn't been like the issue that's like 100% a yes, like it has been in the past couple cycles. Yeah, it's just not as hot, uh, hot button of an issue. And it's been um, legalized for a number of purposes in a lot of states. So I think we're just starting to see, you know, we're kind of hitting the threshold. And, you know, not every state may legalize it right now in this era. So, but we did see some, I believe Maryland um, voted to legalize for recreational use starting next year. So. I'll be there next week, but uh... let's go. <laughs> You're still going to have to travel a little bit, David, for your well, but let's, let's let's get back on topic. All right, so Medicaid expansion, right? So I think 39th state, South Dakota, passed Medicaid expansion. Uh, that was a state. No, it's it's interesting. It's not totally shocking. Um, you know, people will often you know buck their politicians. I think sometimes in these states, um, voting for you know policies that their politicians may not be you know out in front and stumping for, but you know if it helps them, they may vote for it, especially because it's you know, just a ballot measure up or up or down, they might not necessarily vote with, you know, the candidate. And we've seen a lot of momentum for That's it. That's got to have been a shock, Ben, that, that that all of these red states are really going for Medicaid expansion. Is it a shock to you? You're looking at the stuff, stuff day to day. Um, I think everyone's just kind of grappling with how we move on, you know, from from COVID. The, you know, it's very stark difference from, say, March when I was at the Vive conference in Miami, um, just in terms of um, COVID, not necessarily the, like, the masks, no one's really wearing masks here. No one really was at Vive either. But um, just in terms of the, the conversation, COVID's, and it's been that way on the Hill too. COVID has really been put on the back burner. You know, the Biden administration wants more money for uh, for COVID response. That doesn't seem like it's going to happen. They've been asking like for that for a long time and Republicans have th- kind of thrown cold water on it. So I think to back, you know, to go back to, you know, the, the digital health angle here, um, you know, I think companies are grappling with how to handle this market also, too, with um, reduced funding after we saw some inflated values definitely in 2021 for a lot of companies. So I think companies are trying to make do with what they got right now and try to figure out the new normal. So we're here in Las Vegas, you know, talking about we can wander around the show here. There's got to be a lot of there's a lot of other stories, a lot of human interest stories. 
but there's probably some health tech stories out here as well. Do you see anything, uh, any themes, anything shaping up? I don't know whether this is, you're seeing this, Ben, and I know you're seeing it, David, because my wife has started a company in the food is medicine health tech world, but the the form of technology helping address or coordinate the social, the ugly phrase, social determinants of health problems and solutions, I think is really interesting because it's an area that technologists were not at all interested in five or six years ago. And now because of, honestly, policymakers across the country are recognizing the disconnects around transportation, which we covered off with Uber or uh, the food deserts or access to food and, and the power that things like transportation and food and just basic housing can be for health conditions. That's one thing, Ben, that I'm seeing more of. And if you walk around the floor, although I was, I did see one food as medicine company, not my wife, Lauren's company with an open bar at like nine o'clock in the morning. So I'm not, I'm sure it'd be really popular. I hope that's not paid for by Medicaid. No, it's, I think as long as you have organic mixers, <laughs> then they organic mixers and grain alcohol, I think are still considered to be legitimate for, <laughs> but for, yeah. for, for a short period of time. But Ben, do have you, are you seeing that? Cause I, I, that was the thing that jumped out when I was walking around the floor. Yeah, no, there definitely are more companies that are trying to get in on this. And um, I believe the Biden administration did something on this. Well, no, they just they just had, a, a, I think, the first time since 1972, there was a White House conference on hunger and nutrition, bringing together the private sector and the public sector and a lot of big companies, including Walgreens. That's a medium-sized company. To support uh, the food insecurity. Well, well you know, 50% of our stores are in medically underserved areas. 20% are in very, very poor areas. So for a Walgreens and, and a number of the other large companies like Walmart and others really believe that they've got to lean in because, you know, the uh, healthier patients is uh, the only way, get, one, one way to get to a healthier patient is to make sure that hungry people are fed. And I think it's like it, that solution's got to be public and private. And, and in my view, not just tech enabled, but really, you know, tech reinforced. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say it's become much more of a focus in D.C., at least in the last couple of months, you know, people lobbying on it and trying to expand reimbursement in the Medicaid program, Medicare, Medicaid program for food as medicine. Ben, your observation about uh, the lack of mask wearing is interesting. I would say, you know, among the attendees here, there's almost nobody wearing a mask. There's a couple of exceptions. But the staff who are. Yes, you can call me out. Yeah. Well, you're wearing a mask, I think, because you were making bad sounds with your S's on the podcast. And so that's just meant to be like a pop filter. But for other people that are uh, that are here, regular people, um, you actually see people that work for the con- the convention center, for the casinos, a fair percent of them wearing masks, which is interesting because I think uh, the sort of the you know elite attendees that are flying in aren't uh, okay. <laughs> We, we, yes, such as myself, okay, not wearing a mask. And, uh, but quite a few of the staff are, and that actually surprises me a little bit, but I think it's from a very pragmatic standpoint, right? It's not ideological at all. You're going to be exposed to thousands and thousands of people all the time. And just from a personal sort of, you know, understanding of what you need to do, that's, that's how behaviors have shifted. I find that quite interesting. So how about cybersecurity, Ben? That's another topic that you've, uh, that you've written about. How much cybersecurity do we see around here, and how much is that going to be a story? Oh, John, that's what I should be. Cyber insecurity is what you should be asking about. Yeah, that's a mess right now in healthcare. You know, is something that the industry is increasingly grappling with. Um, you know, companies are trying to do, are trying to do stuff more, and HHS and the administration is trying to do more. But there's just a lot of uh, healthcare organizations that don't have the funds. 
Right now, there aren't necessarily a ton of incentives for organizations to boost their cybersecurity. So um, Senator Mark Warner has been kind of taking the lead on this um, in Congress, and he's he's put forward a kind of discussion document with ideas and is floating it out for, for comment right now. One of them is in, increasing um, or just creating incentives for company for healthcare organizations to bolster their cybersecurity in um, the Medicare program. So basically you get, you know, paid more if you have better cybersecurity protocols. But doesn't that, doesn't, I would think that would make sense. I mean, the, the, the challenge right now is the incentives are so good for the external bad actor, whether it's the, you know, your friends, the revolutionary guards in Iran or the David, not friends, John (laughs) allies, or, or just the, your, your random hacker from 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 a you know from a country where it's, they don't have a really great extradition treaty, uh, there is a there, the incentive mismatch is 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 huge. I would also say, Ben, at least in in our experience in looking at it, because you know David is actually uh, advises companies in cybersecurity. The level of sophistication you don't go into healthcare with a background in kind of secure tech or really tech at all. And most of the tech, many of the technology shops are actually outsourced to the large industrial players like Accenture and IBM. And I would argue that maybe their first focus is in the cyber cyber protection of the, the hospitals and health systems. And you've got also the biggest vulnerability in any cyber situation is is people. And 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 healthcare is a people heavy industry. I, you know, I think the the cards are kind of set against healthcare. But David, you should you should jump in here. With your opinions, normally you aren't this shy about something you actually know something about. Well, I'm just shy now that you called me out as a friend of the Iranian, the Revolutionary Guards. Yeah, because they may be sanctioned, and I'm worried that you know I might come along uh, with that. I think what happens in in healthcare is that uh, you have ransomware, which a lot of times you could stop uh, just with basic measures. But there's so many things you know on a hospital CEO's agenda that come above that. Like, can I open the emergency room? Will the nurses show up? Uh, that it, you actually don't get to it. And so they end up being very vulnerable. I think the federal government has done actually a good job. Uh, they have a cybersecurity agency that specifically helped uh, with hospitals, actually recovered uh, ransom from North Korean uh, hackers that had targeted hospitals. And so I think we'll actually see this as really part of kind of civil defense, and it won't just be the industry that's uh, that's handling it. But John, I know you don't like my pivots, but I want to pivot to talk about independent journalism. Because John and I are both big supporters there, probably the last uh, two people on earth that get uh, multiple- Magazines, newspapers. Yeah, delivered to our doors, uh, which we aren't getting there. Cre- yeah, it's dinosaurs that we are. But, uh, you know, and there's been a, a record of some uh, billionaires buying- newspapers like the Washington Post. We have the recent example of uh, Twitter, which is not a newspaper, but is a billionaire. Um, Politico. So is it possible to go and, and uh, you know, be a professional independent uh, journalist these days? Do you see a bright future ahead? And how important is it to have an independent? There's a lot of haves and have nots. Um, you know, local journalism is definitely struggling right now. Um, and it's it's tough. There are just some initiatives like Report for America that's trying to get more people out into local newsrooms, but there really are a lot of news deserts right now for local news. Um, well, it seems like at the same time, there are a bunch of national outlets popping up, uh, startups, um, where the market's already pretty saturated. So I think there are definitely a lot of have and have nots um, in the industry right now. Well, I think we'll leave it there with independent journalism before John takes me over. You're going to, you know, you brought in Iran, I brought North Korea, we didn't mention some of the other countries, but why don't we why don't we just uh, stop it there? But we are in Las Vegas for our third annual HLTH conference interview series. 
And we've been speaking today with Ben Leonard. He's a health technology reporter at Politico. For one of the bright lights of independent journalism. Absolutely. And uh, along with Care Talk, I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, please subscribe. And Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.